Hello and welcome to the Ocean Rowing Club podcast, where each week I will talk to a past ocean rower to get their unique view on the ocean rowing experience. My guest this week is Zerk Bolter. Hi Zerk, please introduce yourself. Hi Alex, uh, yeah, so good to be able to join you on the, the podcast and to be able to contribute uh, to anybody in the future that might be contemplating a, a, a challenge such as this. So uh, I am Zurk Boerter, based in Cape Town, South Africa. I'm 59 years old. Uh, my background is naval. I spent 17 years in the South African Navy as a combat officer. And then pretty much adventurous after that, I had an adventure sports marketing company. And uh, besides that, I have been in renewable energy for the past 12 years. So uh, a lot of a vested interest in sustainable development. So yeah, I've only done one row uh, and I think for most of us, one is enough. I uh, took on the challenge to row from Cape Town to Rio. Uh, as a solo rower, my boat was one that I built myself uh, based on a full Morrison design that I purchased from him. The total crossing was 7,200 kilometers and I set off in December 2020, the 19th of December 2020 and completed my crossing continent to continent 69 days later at a town called Buzios in Brazil. But my official finish after seven one days was at Cabo Frio at the original Rio de Janeiro Yacht Club, uh, which uh, was the, the official finish. Uh, they had arranged to, to welcome me and to, to complete the, the row. So it was a completely independent, unsupported row. And yeah, as uh, ocean rowers know, um, not for the faint-hearted. We like to start with the big one. Why did you want to row across an ocean? I'm often asked what was my reason and my motivation for wanting to row from Cape Town to Rio. And it's not a simple answer. You know, as the the concept started growing, it is an evolutionary process that, you know, took on different uh, aspects to it. But ultimately, for me, the reason for my row as an adventurer, I had done lots of other adventure challenges from trekking through the Himalayas for three weeks. I had done adventure races, uh, Ironman, uh, so I'd done quite a, a, a combination of adventures. And I wanted to do something that was going to raise the bar for myself. Uh, and the reason for that was twofold. Firstly, I wanted to set an example to my kids and my loved ones that we can, in fact, achieve anything we set our minds and our hearts to and that we are prepared to take action on. But then I also needed to uh, use the row to, to highlight the need for sustainable development, which is something that is really close to my heart, uh, having worked in the renewable energies industry and still having a passion for that. I believe that is important for us to showcase uh, sustainable development and that renewable energies can be and is the answer for, for solving so many of our problems on the planet today. Tell us the top three highlights of your crossing. I don't think any of us realize the uh, enormity of 
a challenge such as this taking on a a, a row across an, an ocean. And it's no surprise that so few people have actually done it comparatively to other challenges and, and, and options. And see, putting it into that perspective, there are really more challenging days than than highlights. And, you know, I'm, we will chat about the challenges later on. But highlights for me, uh, I had two really, really big highlights in that uh, the first one was having Marlon on three occasions coming very, very close past my boat called Rattle. Rattle is the Afrikaans name for a honey badger. And I was rowing when I saw the shape approaching. And at first I thought it was a shark. And then I realized that it was a Marlin. And, you know, they come close to the boats to look if there was any lunch or supper or dinner underneath the boat. But the marlin came within half a meter. In fact, if I had reached out from, from the boat, I would most probably have been able to touch it. And it is quite uh, an experience to see a marlin alive in his natural habitat versus when a game fisher catches a marlin and, you know, it's hanging off a hook at the end of a key. The live one in the ocean has got an amazing grace and color to it, which is indescribable, you know, unless you've seen it, uh, it's so difficult to to describe. And to have that experience repeated a few times was really, really special. It was amazing. And and it offset the downside of the the disappointment in how little fish there there's left in the, the Atlantic Ocean. My second uh, highlight was two days from the finish. Uh, I had just rounded Sao Tome uh, on the Brazilian coast, and it was one of my toughest four hours on the road because of the, the ocean and the currents all coming from different directions around Sao Tome. But once I had passed that, I went through the uh, or into the, the, the Buzios Bay, and it was 10 p.m. at night when the wind completely died down. It was close to full moon, so the sea became as calm and as flat as a mirror with the moon reflecting off the surface. You know, and having been at sea for such an extended period of time and having the wind and the waves, you know, blowing around the boat and slapping against the side of the boat 24-7, and then suddenly going into this experience of complete, total, utter calm, not a sound. It was so quiet that my ears were actually ringing from it. But I was just—I was rowing, and suddenly I realized how the the weather and the conditions had changed. And I just decided to stop, and I just sat for twenty minutes to to experience this. And then after twenty minutes, I thought, you know, <laughs> you've got a destination to reach, buddy. Best you get back onto the oars, uh, which I did, and I rowed for about fifteen minutes. And I just thought, no, hang on, this this experience is a, a once in a lifetime. I have to just stop and 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 drink it in. So I stopped for another half an hour and just sat quietly. You know, I had some really, uh, really good personal time in that environment, in that situation. And it's, it's, it's one of my, my really special memories of the row. Yeah. You know, and, and then the next day was the, the last day at sea. So it was a, a, a culmination. I think the other part, the, the, the final highlight, which, yeah, well, it is part of the row was, uh, getting to the finish line. Uh, so my official finish at Cabo Frio, at the, the old Rio de Janeiro Yacht Club, you know, we were all globally in a COVID lockdown of some sort or the other. And two weeks before I estimated to be in Cabo Frio, 
I realized that none of my support team or my family would be able to be there to welcome me at the finish line, you know, and in this modern day and age, when we uh, don't have something on social media, it didn't happen. But it was a case of thinking in my mind, well, if there's nobody to welcome me, did this really happen? You know, it was such a, a strange mental process. And then uh, I was just informed by my media manager, don't worry, we're on it, we're organizing something. So Sue had made contact with a, a, a mutual friend from a network in from uh, Cabo Frio, uh, a gentleman by the name of Marillo, and they had arranged for a welcoming party, an unbelievable welcoming party. And as I'm approaching uh, Cabo Frio, I noticed that there was an, an, an outrigger canoe in the area, and I thought, oh, you know, what are these guys doing? This is quite far out. Uh, I knew that there was a media boat on its way, uh, a ski boat, but I hadn't seen it. And then I saw more uh, outrigger canoes, and then there's a, a, an eight outrigger canoe. And then they come, but they approach me, and uh, the penny drops, and I realize, oh, this is a welcoming party. And then this is followed up by the Marines, the, the Harbor Police, the local sea rescue, and then some more ski boats from the, the local yacht club. And within five minutes from having nobody around me, the sea was just completely alive with people and the, the media boat arriving, you know, and then as we do with, with the Ocean Rose at that finish line, when you, you set off the flares and you fly your flags uh, and, and the reality of that sank in, you know, as I did it, you know, initially I was just doing it because oh, it's a good photo opportunity. But it was such an experience because then that signified to me mentally, emotionally, physically, it's the end of the row. It, is, it was such an emotional experience going through that with all the boats around me and the reality sinking in. It's done. It's over. Uh, 71 days on my own at sea going through all the challenges. Really, a uh, total highlight of the crossing was going across that finish line. What was the hardest part physically and what was the hardest part mentally? I'm often also asked about the challenges, you know, what was it like being out there? Uh, how tough was it physically and emotionally? But quite interestingly, you know, as, as pointed out by you in your question, it's mentally, it's, it's an aspect that we don't realize taking on a challenge like this, this, that there's actually a difference between the emotional challenge and the mental challenge. I think everybody knows that physically it's going to be tough, you know, and, and you prepare for it, you train. I, I trained for two years and I knew that my training was just enough to get me going that my first two weeks at sea would still be part of my training. So physically, I was well prepared. Emotionally, I was also pretty well prepared because of my other adventures that I've done. So, and, and I had expectations of the toughness of the, the emotional part, being away from family and loved ones. But I'd never given any thought to the mental challenge. Uh, and for me, mentally, it was the biggest challenge. You know, it's crossing from Africa to South America following the trade winds route. So I was somewhere between 20 degrees and 17 degrees south of the equator. But there's always a, a pressure system, a weather system in central South Atlantic. So although I had the predominant wind and swells coming from Africa, so coming from east to west, there was also a little swell, a small swell 
pushing up from the, the central Atlantic system. And this swell was running 24-7 from the side, directly on the beam, making the boat roll. And it, it actually became physically challenged because it stressed my, my body on the right-hand side because I had to consistently compensate for the rolling motion of the boat. But besides the physical side and getting sore and, and you know, being, being really in, in agony with it uh, until I got conditioned for that, the mental part of it, you know, the sea is relentless. It's unforgiving. And going through this 24-7, through about two and a half weeks that this just carried on and on and on, was mentally really, really tough and, and draining. And, and that was my toughest part of the crossing, was that mental part that I was challenged by. And I would encourage everybody that's preparing for a row to give a good thought and preparation to the mental side, not just the physical and the emotional side. It's two different things, uh, emotionally and mentally, that you have to prepare you yourself for. And I think that mental aspect is also something that you carry with you for a considerable time period after completing your row. So yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, it's definitely something that is tough, <laughs> very tough. <laughs> Excluding people and pets, which three things did you miss most while you were at sea? Being at sea for an extended period of time has lots of advantages and disadvantages. Uh, you know, you really get to, to know yourself. But there are some creature comforts that we miss while you're at sea. And it's not big things. Well, in my case, it wasn't any big things. It was just the, the convenience of walking out your front door at home and going around the corner to your, your local shop, being able to get fresh milk or an ice cream, and a nice cold ice cream. That was something that, that I just realized, you know, that we, we just take for granted. And then also, uh, I really missed having diverse foods, diverse menus. And also not anything spectacular, but the, the one thing, and, and I'm not a person that really enjoys fast food, but in this case, I just halfway across, uh, and it was triggered by somebody on social media asking the question, you know, what would be the first meal that I would enjoy after the row? And I realized that I wanted to have a beef burger. Now, this might sound contentious for somebody that supports sustainable development, but that's another subject altogether. But what I really missed in, in a beef burger was just the texture of the food and the salty taste, you know, having spices on, on the food that's not the same as your daily, boring, predictable uh, menu day in and day out, you know, just to have something with a different taste, flavor, texture, and also Coke. I never drink Coke, but I just had a, a craving for an ice-cold sweet Coke. Uh, so that was my, my first meal that I had after completion of the row. But I think the bottom line here is that the things that we, we really miss, uh, you know, the daily luxuries and stuff, it's not big things. It's actually just small things that we take for granted. And then, you know, you, you, you learn to appreciate those again. How much training did you do before the row? It's quite interesting uh, when you prepare, you know, and, and once you set up your mind, you made up your mind and you realize that this is quite a big challenge. So I'm going to have to do a substantial amount of preparation and training. Because I had done quite a bit of ultra endurance, off-road stuff, uh, adventure races, eco challenges, trekking through the Himalayas for three weeks. 
Uh, I had an expectation of the physicality of an event like this. And I also realized that no matter how much training you do, it will not be enough. Because there's different elements that you can't, can't replicate in a gym or in a weekend row, uh, you know, as part of training. But you can do your best. So what I did was, my first thing that I did to prepare for rowing was to join the Coastal Rowing Club so that I could be taught to row. Uh, yes, I did not know how to row when I made the decision to do the, the crossing. So that was really valuable. We've got an uh, Olympic medalist that's our coach at the club. And uh, he taught me and I said, I want to know and I want to learn how to row efficiently, which he did. And then also my technical rowing advisor, it's a good friend of mine now, which also did a lot of training with me and, and helped me to sort out the rowing, which I think is critical because it doesn't matter how much you train. If you can't row properly, you're just going to waste a lot of energy. But with that said, again, lockdown had a big impact in South Africa. We were for a substantial period of time limited to our personal gardens, our personal properties. We could only go to the shops to buy uh, critical items. So I had to set up my gym in my, my garage at home, which I did. And the training that I did, uh, I'm fortunate that I've been training for my entire life. So I, I had the base to start from. But the training that I did was I would look at a, a, a rowing stroke and look at the different elements of a stroke and try to identify which parts of the body and which muscle groups are required for each part of the stroke. And then I created a training program for myself to, to exercise and to train and to strengthen those muscle and, and body parts to give me the ability to do that. And I did a lot of training. I effectively trained for, for two years uh, in the gym at first and then afterwards at, at home. And then the final bit of my training was to spend time on my boat uh, in False Bay off, off Simonstown. The boat was based at the Simonstown Yacht Club or the False Bay Yacht Club in Simonstown. And I would row from there three days or three times a week, including a long row every weekend. So you know, I would row overnight during weekends. And that for me was very valuable, you know, just getting your body used to the repetitive nature of rowing hour after hour. So yeah, definitely that is the, the, the important part of, of training. I think you've got to do diverse training. You've got to cover all elements of it. Definitely some gym training, strengthening training, endurance training, and rowing. Definitely rowing, I think. I would suggest as much rowing as possible. And I, as I said, you know, at the outset, I don't think you can ever train enough. It is a, a reality that rowing intermittently during your training or training intermittently is a completely different ball game once you're out there and you're actually rowing day after day after day. So except that you're not going to be able to train enough. Um, that, that's just my opinion. I don't know if that will work for everybody. Did you suffer from any injuries, sores, nasties, or sickness? I believe that I was quite fortunate in that I did not get sick. Uh, I think there's a big potential because, you know, going through a challenge such as this, you do break down your immune system, so you are likely to get sick. But on the flip side, because you on your own, you're isolated, you're not exposed to, to other people and nasties in the air or whatever. So it's a bit of a quid pro quo. But yes, I was fortunate. 
I only had a sinus infection, and I think that was a result of me closed up in the cabin for three days during a, a storm uh, going up the, the African coast. And at that stage, I also realized that somehow, I don't know how I slipped up, but I did not pack any supplements. So that was a bit problematic. But in my days in the Navy as a combat diver, I did learn how to, to rinse out my nose. And this might be a bit yucky. But yeah, just to use seawater and to, to rinse out your nose and sinuses using that. And that was very effective because my sinuses cleared up very quickly, uh, you know, just rinsing three, four times a day with seawater, salt water, which there was lots of all around me. And then the other, uh, I didn't get sick, but I did get a bad uh, injury, just overuse in injury. Uh, and as a result of the, the, the sea conditions, uh, as I mentioned earlier, with the weather and the swell coming from the south, which was directly on my beam. And that was quite problematic for me. I, I was in agony down the right-hand side of my body. But, you know, it's the human body is really amazing. And I've always known this, uh, but it was reinforced that you just, if you're hanging there and you just persevere, your body will compensate and, and strengthen itself and, and heal itself, uh, which, which happened. Um, and then, you know, after a period of time, I just, just realized, oh, okay, it's not as bad anymore. And then, you know, it went away and, and I was fine for the second part of the row. So, yeah, and then I have to confess, I did have a bit of seasickness the, the first two days. And it's been standard for me all my, my years in the Navy. Uh, if I hadn't been at sea for a while, when I go back to sea and the first day is rough, I just have to get my sea legs. And I know that once I get seasick, that's my sea legs kicking in. So uh, it wasn't a problem for me. I wasn't worried or anything. It was just a process that I had to go through. So yeah, all in all, uh, with regards to getting sores and injuries, very fortunate. Uh, I did not get any blisters on my hands. I did not get any blisters or sores on my, my bottom, on my backside. I was pedantic about keeping any everything dry, all the contact points dry. Uh, on my rowing seat, I had a, a sheepskin-covered uh, pillow that I had on my seat, and then I rowed without gloves. I had wooden grips uh, specifically chosen. And I didn't wear gloves because, you know, gloves get wet and sweaty. And then the, I found that they cause blisters during my training. So I went without any gloves and it worked for me. Uh, no blisters, no salt sores, nothing anywhere. So, so really fortunate that way. Can you think of three songs which remind you of your row? It's quite interesting uh, when we think about music and songs. It has such a, a power to take us back to past or previous experiences. And uh, it has this ability to take us right there and to rekindle everything associated with that memory. But quite interestingly, when I started, I had an a, a external memory, a memory stick with uh, about 5,000 tracks of, of music. But once I started the, the row, I realized after about four or five days at sea that I hadn't listened to any music. And I was actually enjoying just having that mental and emotional calm. So I decided that I was not going to play music until I make a firm decision to, to start listening. And that decision came about halfway. I can't remember the exact day. But it came halfway and I 
put in my my memory stick in my uh, my my boombox uh, that I taken with. And I started playing music and I played for about an hour and I really enjoyed it. But I also got to after an hour, I thought, okay, this is enough now. I, I, I don't want any more. And I posted about this on my social media and I listed, I can't remember which four tracks was my, of what I listened to was my, my favorite tracks out of, out of that group. And this got such a response from, from my followers that uh, I did the same. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do this for a week. So I did the same the next day. Uh, and by the, the second day and the third day, I was listening more and had the music playing for longer periods of time. And every time I would listen and when the special track came up, I would make a note of it. And then the next day I would post in my social media about it. And then one of the followers created a channel, an, an iTunes channel that listed all these tracks that I was posting on, on social media. And it became quite a, a popular discussion point. So it's quite interesting because I had so many tracks that I was playing and listening to and that had a real impact on me. But to choose a few as, as the, the ones that are the most or that was the most influential for me, I think for me always at the top of my list is the Metallica song, Nothing Else Matters. Because it's so powerful in, in the words and the, the message that it puts through. And when you're in a situation where you've taken on a massive challenge, it's a reminder of who we are, what we are able to achieve if we we set our minds to it and, and we go through and then obviously because it's a rock ballad you know it's, it's powerful and it's strong so it, it really motivates you and and gets you going and then the second track is from by johnny click a south african artist that passed away a, a few years ago it was an icon in in south africa for everybody you know through the the struggle years and everything everybody respected him and because of his, his the stand that he took against discrimination of of any type of kind and he wrote a, a, a song called the crossing the crossing is more a spiritual song about basically passing over but there's different ways to to interpret it and for me it's also the spiritual and the mental and emotional change that we go through during a challenge such as a south atlantic crossing it is it is a big change in in who we are in in a lot of ways and that was a, a really uh, a motivational song for me and also because it's somebody that i really hold in 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 high regard and then the last song that has become a favorite for me uh, since a row is Coldplay's Fix You. Yeah, it's just such an amazing song of support and encouragement and pledging to, to help other people and give them the, the encouragement and support, which I believe is something that comes inherent with taking on a big challenge and completing it. You know, once you've gone through that experience and, and you understand more about the human spirit and what we are actually capable of achieving, I think it puts a responsibility on, on us to, to support and, and help other people that are potentially going through difficult times to help them to, to set goals and challenges for themselves. So yeah, that's why I, I really love uh, Fix You by Coldplay. Did you suffer from any post-adventure blues? I was, uh, well, I don't know if I was fortunate or unfortunate. It is what it is, I guess. But shortly after I completed the row, I'd come back to South Africa, to Cape Town. I'd settled in. I'd done quite a bit of media. 
I was planning to, to start and I'd been booked for quite a few motivational talks at, at corporates in South Africa. I also did some talks uh, online for uh, companies in the UK subsequently. Uh, and then I was offered or, or asked if I was available as a consultant to a company in the renewable energies industry, which I accepted. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I realized that through COVID, times are tough and challenging, so we, we have to accept opportunities. Uh, and I accepted this, and then I went from there into a, a, an executive position at the same company. But what that caused was that I was did not have the time to to decompress to really process the experience and it was only in december after i decided to leave the company that i suddenly had lots of time for myself and i started having time to to really process so uh adventure blues <laughs> yes <laughs> i think anybody that goes through something like this will have blues on some level or the other in my opinion, uh, a big part of processing Adventure Blues is potentially writing a book. Also, public speaking also helps one to, to process those experiences. And I can imagine that different people will have different levels of blues on completion. I mean, everything changes in your life and you have to adapt to that and get used to that. And you, you are, quite frankly, you know, you, you are on a different level of experience having gone through, through something like that. And it would also appear that most people, and it's not just ocean rowers, but people that have done big adventure challenges are reluctant to speak about it. I would venture to assume that it, it is a, a, a very personal process. For me, it is. It is difficult to articulate uh, what is going through your mind, um, how you are dealing with it. <laughs> there, there's so many different aspects to that. But it's also a process of, of completing the, the experience. I, I read of one rower who did the row from uh, California to Hawaii that completely withdrew from society for three months after his row. And I completely understand that. It is a tough and challenging time to process. And I think what makes it worse, and this is just my opinion and assumption on this, is that people around you think that because you've achieved this big challenge, that you have lots of people around you to hang out with, to socialize with. And it's not necessarily the case. And people, I think, tend to give you the space and sometimes you don't want the space. I'm rambling a bit. But uh, the, re the reality is that there's definitely an adventure blues. And my recommendation is write a book, write memoirs, uh, write a journal, get out there, talk about it, share your experience, because that also helps you to process it. What advice do you have for future ocean rowers? It's difficult to uh, form unbiased opinion on advice to future and potential ocean rowers because it's an opinion and, and all opinions are personally biased. Based on my experience and my background to having served in the Navy as a combat officer at sea for 17 years, I know that I had a really good advantage and a, a professional baseline to take on a challenge such as this. 
And during my preparation, uh, a lot of people were challenging me and asking me questions and basically challenging my sanity. But because I had the background and I had the experience, I could uh, uh, appropriately answer and it didn't impact on my confidence and my belief in my ability to successfully complete the challenge. And therein lies my opinion in that it would appear that there's currently ocean rowers that are taking on challenges that are not adequately prepared for the time at sea. You can't, this is my opinion, you, you, you can't be adequately prepared for a transatlantic or a trans whichever ocean crossing if you've only spent 200 hours at sea, you know, and that's not even consistent or, 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 or nonstop in a lot of cases. You know, you, you have a, a, an extra long weekend. It is not the same. Once you go into week two, week three, it changes. Uh, you know, you, the, the reality sinks in of, of what you are up to. But besides that is also being in a position where you've been at sea going through a storm. You know what the sea can throw at you because you've experienced that. If you haven't been through that, you should not be in an ocean rowing boat at sea. I would recommend that ocean rowers join a, a, a yacht club or a, a go to a yachting academy and volunteer their services as a, a deck worker in exchange for time at sea to get out there in rough weather to experience what the ocean can throw at you. What it feels like to have a beam sea day in and day out. What it feels like to have hectic sea conditions for, for week on week. Just coping with the mental challenge of the weather because you can't change the weather. There's nothing that you can do about it. So that is, that is my recommendation. You know, the training that goes in getting the qualifications, everything, you know, those things are, are, are assumed as a, a non-negotiable. But on top of that, my recommendation is get time at sea. Get on a yacht, do a long trip with a yacht just to get that experience at sea so you know exactly what you, you're letting yourself in for. But don't let it put you off. This is an, an amazing challenge. It's a tough challenge. It's tougher than what you can possibly comprehend it will be. Make no mistake about that. But it's, it's worth it. It's all worth it. Just get out there. Do it. If you want to make an impact, if you want to take on a challenge, go big. Don't waste your time with something small. Make it worthwhile. And finally, would you do it again? Oh, the big question, would I do it again? Um, when I got to the finish line, I said, never, 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 ever, ever again. It's not going to happen again. And then after a while, I thought, well, maybe. And now I'm in the frame of the mind where I say, possibly. Is there anything specific on the cards? No, not yet. I'm looking at different options. I am most definitely of the mindset and planning to do another challenge. I can imagine the ocean world somehow be involved with it, but it's not a, a, a deal breaker. I, I love nature. Just getting out there in the mountains, in the deserts, on the oceans, wherever it is where, where nature is unspoiled. So it's another ocean row. At this stage, possibly, but I don't have anything on the cards. But I can very well understand how, for some ocean rowers, it is an addiction because it is an addiction. Uh, you know, it's, 
the feeling of the successful completion of such a momentous challenge, that's indescribable. And that is enough to motivate somebody to do the, the second one and the third one. So whereas I think most people directly after the row would say no, over time, it is definitely something that the seed will, will grow again. Huge thank you to Zerk for sharing his story and all of his advice. I could listen to him for hours. Don't you think he has such a lovely tone to his voice? I'm looking forward to seeing what his next adventure is, whether it is on the ocean or not. I'm sure it will be of epic proportions. If you are an ocean rower and would like to share your story, please get in touch, theoceanrowingclub at gmail.com or via Instagram at theoceanrowingclub. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to rate, review and give it five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and like, share and recommend it to all of your friends. And don't forget to join us again next week when my guest is only seven weeks post-row. Toodle pip!